Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We don't post there as much as we would like to, but uh, we try to post somewhat frequently. Um, Andrew Work just posted an article here on Friday, so go check it out, theparticularbaptist.net. And if you'd like to support us financially, uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, the best way to do that is at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. And thank you uh, to those who already uh, support us for that platform, Boomi and Christy Aramu and uh, our brother Stephen. We want to thank you both for your support of the podcast. Um, one thing that you might notice today, my co-host Sean is not with me. Um, Sean is taking a leave of absence from the podcast. Um, I'm not sure exactly when he'll be back, um, but it will probably be uh, just me, at least for the time being. Um, so we will move forward in the show. We'll keep pressing on, try to keep putting content out there. Um, you know, hopefully nothing's going to change right now, but right now Sean is taking a leave of absence, and um, we'll see uh, when he comes back. But today we're going to be diving into... Uh, some particular Baptist history and theology. We're going to be looking at this book here. Uh, this is uh, Nehemiah Cox's Vindic. I can't pronounce the Latin. I'm sorry. I don't read Latin, and I'm not going to try. I'm just going to read the translation: "A Vindication of the Truth." This is by Nehemiah Cox. Nehemiah Cox was one of the signers of our confession and likely one of the co-authors of our confession. Um, this is edited by Doctor. James Renahan, and this is published by Broken Wharf, who sponsored the episode today. They provided me this copy, and I want to thank them for that. Thank you, brothers, for providing this and for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Um, but this is a this is an excellent work. I haven't read the whole thing, um, but I have read some of it, and it's a very helpful work um, as Nehemiah Cox was responding to Thomas Collier. Now, We've talked about Thomas Collier on the show probably multiple times at this point. And Thomas Collier was a particular Baptist who went rogue, who was uh, teaching things that were contrary uh, not only to biblical doctrine, but also to particular Baptist distinctives um, and, just, and just Christianity in general. So there were things that had to be addressed by the particular Baptists. And this was one of the responses uh, apparent responses that came out against Thomas Collier, responding to specific heresies that he was putting out there. And uh, I want to read some of the different ones, because Cox, to his credit, is very uh, helpful and good at citing Collier as he's interacting with his views. He's not just saying, well, this is what I think he said, or uh, without citing the author, he quotes Thomas Collier from his uh, from the work he's pulling from, and tries to interact with his words, which is, shows the credibility of of Cox. Uh, but Cox actually does list the specific heresies that he's dealing with, and there's twenty of them here, and they're just really short. I just want to read through them so you get an idea of some of the background that uh, we're dealing with here before we dive into our material today. So. We see he, he's responding to Collier that Christ is the Son of God only as considered in both natures. 
Number two is he was the Prince of Life, the Lord of Glory. He was killed and crucified, and that he was not, and that was not in the human nature only. Yeah, you can see some Christology issues there. As God man, he was a creature. This creature, God man, made all things. The word God man was made flesh. Here are uncre there are uncreated heavens, for the eternal God must have some eternal habitation. Christ died for the universe, the heavens, and earth, and all things therein. That's We will be talking about that today. The gospel ought to be preached to the whole creation, even to that part of it that is not capable of hearing it or understanding it. Again, that will be also discussed today. The foolish virgins shall obtain some great privilege in the day of Christ. Those who never heard the gospel cannot be under the judgment of damnation. The sinful defilement of our nature is not the sin, but the affliction of man. It's possible for men in respect of power to believe the gospel if God do not work at all upon them by his spirit. Regenerate persons or true believers may finally fall away from God and perish. None may be eternally damned, but those that sin against the Holy Spirit. The gospel hath been preached to men before they were dead. Men may repent so as to obtain deliverance from their torment after death in the last judgment. Sluggish Christians and formalists may find some mercy in the day of judgment. Perhaps a torment of some sinners may not exceed a hundred years, almost like a purgatory kind of scenario. The Sodomites have already received their judgment and are still suffering thereof, and the day of general judgment is like to be their, their day of ease. And finally, the infinite sacrifice of Christ remains the same to have its influence for the obtaining of grace after the judgment as before. And throughout each of these uh, listings here, Cox provides page numbers from Collier's work that he's referring to uh, to specifically address where those types of or where these heresies are coming from. So you can go and look them up for yourself, right? And this isn't Cox just making, he's saying it's from this chapter, this page, or whatever the case might be in Collier's work and specifically dealing with it uh, in that respect. So it's it's very well documented um, from uh, Cox's perspective, uh, showing the credibility of that this wasn't just somebody doing a knee-jerk reaction thought through, and he wanted to represent the other side uh, properly. It's also important to note that this work was not just put forth by uh, Nehemiah Cox. Uh, Cox certainly was the author of it, but there were other men who put their name to it, other particular Baptists who put their name to it. So this wasn't the opinion of just one man. This wasn't the opinion of, of one person coming around and saying, well, you know, I, I don't like Collier. I'm just going to throw shade at him. No, this was a well-thought-out process that other godly, respectable men put their name on, including William Kiffin, who's also a signer of our Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, and they even have a letter in here. It's William Kiffin, Joseph Mas uh, Maesters, Masters, uh, Henry Forty, Daniel Dyke, James Fitton, William Collins. And this is all in addition to, uh, to Nehemiah Cox's particular work. So it, it, another thing to point out, too, is that the men that put this together, Cox and the men that wrote it, they were not looking to just simply bash Collier. They weren't doing this to, you know, discredit him for the purpose of getting back at him or any kind of nefarious um, 
any kind of nefarious motives. They were trying to guard against false teaching, and they saw these doctrines as crucial. These were not secondary doctrines of these men. These were crucial doctrines that were central to the faith, and to deviate from them, as Collier had done, is to put oneself outside of the church. Um, and what they they were seeking is, is certainly that truth be followed, the scriptures uh, be be elevated above all things, but they were not seeking to you know, go out and do character assassinations and, and trying to just discredit Collier because they didn't like him. Uh, they were trying to protect the church against false doctrine. Um, another thing to point out. Oh, and I, I want to look from the opening letter real quick. Uh, let's see. Here. To the reader. All right. So this is from page 22 of the, of the book here. This is Cox writing to the to the reader. He says, There can be no gospel peace without truth, nor communion of saints without an agreement in fundamental principles of the Christian religion. We must contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints and mark those that cause divisions among us by their new doctrines contrary thereto, and avoid them, lest any should be deceived by Mr. Collier's good works and fair speeches. I cannot but take notice that his general epistles were ushered into the world with the same pretext of making peace and discharge of his conscience, and with his great show of zeal for God and other as plausible pretenses as he now maketh or can make. And there is even uh, information in here that it sounds like that uh, Cox was informed that Collier had even repented, um, but he points out very clearly, he says, These things indeed, as I am informed, he saith he hath repented of, Ingenious recantation of, uh, but he yet thought himself, never thought himself, but never yet thought himself obliged to publish to the world an ingenious recantation of them, that so those concerned might have from himself a plain and particular warning to take heed of that poison which hath flown from his own pen. However, it may be a good warning to us not to heed the smooth or swelling words of a man carried about by every wind of doctrine. So he said, well, it sounds like so he may have repented. Someone told me, or I heard that he repented, but he hasn't recanted his views. So from in Cox's eyes, it seems as if Collier is still in his sin. He hasn't recanted of them publicly and come out and say, well, these, you know, the, I was wrong in this area. He hasn't done that. And so he's dealing with what Collier has put out. So that's a little bit of background on this uh, as we dive into some of the discussion today surrounded. Uh, one more historical note, an important one. Um, this was published in 1677, which interestingly enough was the same year that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith was published. Um, Sam Renahan has talked about this on our show before when we talked about the Petty France Church Part 1, um, and you can see in his book he discusses this as well. Um, it seems that the the timing, uh, at least in my opinion, the timing of our confession coming out uh, was no accident. It seems it came out, it was right around this time when they were dealing with Collier, and it, was, it seems to me to be a response to Collier, solidifying, here's what we as real particular Baptists and Orthodox Christians believe. Um, so I think that's an important uh, thing to put out. Uh, John, I see you commented here. Uh, which book is that? Um, 
I'm assuming you're referring to this. I'll hold it up so everyone can see it again. Nehemiah Cox's A Vindication of the Truth, edited by Sam Renahan and published by Broken Wharf. If you go to brokenwharf.com, and, and Wharf is spelled W-H-A-R-F-E, Broken Wharf, you can uh, pre-order this book. Okay, I got an early copy because uh, I'm reviewing it, but you can pre-order this book um, and it will be sent to you at the right time when it, when it comes out. Okay, um, but we're going through this today. We're going to be looking at chapter three, uh, and we'll go ahead and dive right into that. So one of the crucial topics that Cox addresses here, he's addressing these heresies that have come out from Collier. He's uh, being very clear to distinguish himself from these things. This is not what Christians believe. Collier believes this, and he's not one of us. Uh, he talks about the extent of the atonement. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. We had a whole episode responding to uh, to Austin Brown's book on uh, the atonement. But clearly, there were those, even among particular Baptists, at least with Collier, who believed in some kind of universal atonement. Now, Collier has a very interesting view of the atonement in that he thinks that the atonement extends not just to all people, but all creation, that Jesus died to redeem everything that is in creation, not just the people in it. Um, so he kind of, I think, took a unique view in that respect. He took the view of the atonement much farther than even a general Baptist would. Uh, general Baptist did not believe in some kind of universal creation atonement. Um, they at least believed in, in a general universal atonement for all mankind. Um, so you see kind of this unlimited uh, aspect and flowing of the uh, of the atonement from Collier's uh, point of view. And it's definitely a radical view. And I want to read a little bit here. I want to keep referencing the book because um, I think it's very helpful that we we actually hear from the horse's mouth what's being said here. And we can interact with what Cox is dealing with and not taking my word for it. Um, so this is from page 81 of of Cox's book here. He quotes Collier, okay, and he references his page 13 of the book he's citing. And this is Collier speaking, quote, that Christ died for the world. That is the universe, the heavens and earth, all things therein, the whole six days creation, uh, the whole six days creation that fell with man for the sin of man. So at a bare bones level, that is Collier's understanding of the atonement. Christ died not only for all men, but for the universe, heavens and earth, all creation, um, and even saying that creation as a whole fell in Adam. Um, and hopefully we'll talk about that in a little bit, as it shows he has a very strange understanding of the covenant of works uh, in the garden and what federal headship means for, uh, for Adam and his posterity. Um, so he creates kind of a a problem here but this is a radical view i don't even think the remonstrants who were the the uh, followers and the contemporaries of jacob arminius would have even gone down that road i could be wrong but i have not ever heard of them uh, going down that road at least as it relates to the um, atonement the remonstrants were far more orthodox than uh, than we give them credit for um, but christ died for all creation including those not obedient to god those people not obedient to god um, now, of course, this, I think, is quite easily refutable from Scripture. We see very clearly the applications of atonement 
and of sin being applied only to those who break God's law, which, of course, animals can't do and trees can't do and flowers can't do. But we see those things being applied to uh, souls and human beings, those who are held accountable to the law of God. Um, and we can see, too, I mean, just turning over a cursory to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Who's under sin? It is Jews and Greeks. That's everybody, right? Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. Jews and those who are not Jews. We're all under sin. All men are under sin. There's nothing in there about creation. There's nothing even implied. You can't even make an argument from good and necessary consequence that that is the case. But we see Collier taking certain passages and applying them uh, in that specific way. And this clearly applies to people and only those who broke the law of God. God can't redeem people. Uh, God can't redeem people who haven't broken his law because the whole point of redeeming them was to save them from the penalty of the law, which was eternal death. Uh, but the trees haven't done that. The frogs haven't done that. The dogs haven't done that. Only human beings have. And again, this is why we have to have a, a proper covenant theology, because uh, if we don't, we're going to fall into a lot of problems uh, as it relates to understanding the imputation of sin and our standing before God and, and how all that relates together. And clearly, Collier, um, as I read just the page before here, he talks about the whole six days creation that fell with man for the sin of man. And all, it seems like he's implying that creation fell when man fell, uh, as if you know Adam's covenant headship had some kind of uh, imputed effect upon creation. And it, instead of you know talking about sin having uh, negative effects upon creation, but more like it, creation fell with Adam, um, and I, that's obviously a big problem. But Cox uh, does talk about Collier's support for this view. Collier goes to Colossians uh, 1.20 and 1.21. Uh, we can see uh, this very clearly, like on page 101, page 101 of, of Cox's book. Uh, he talks, he quotes Collier um, in, in using this understanding. Uh, let's see here. Here's some more of what he's saying. So this is Collier again. Quote, the design of God in his gospel grace by the death of his son, thus being universal to the whole world in this threefold sense, as hath been mentioned, hence it is that the gospel must be preached to the whole creation. It is especially to be published to men who were concerned in the sin and the fall, but it is and may be truly preached to the whole creation, though they do not hear it and understand it. So, Talking about evangelism a little bit. So flowing from this understanding of a universal atonement, it makes sense that one would come to the conclusion that you must preach the gospel to all of creation. Um, and, you know, Collier's taking Mark 16, 15, whether or not you believe that is an original text or or not, um, I, I think is irrelevant to the discussion, but the the matter remains that that's the passage that is used by Collier to prove his point that all of creation must be preached to in terms 
of the gospel. So you can see the dominoes start to fall. So he believes that all creation is redeemed by God. So therefore, we must preach the gospel to the rocks, to the trees, to the dogs, to the cats, to the fish. Everything must have the gospel preached, even if they don't understand it or receive it, um, which, of course, is absurd. And Cox really gets into very sarcastic language and starts mocking Collier to some extent uh, just because of how absurd that is. Um, but one of the passages that is used by Collier to help prove uh, his point of universal redemption is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 20. Now it says, and by him we reconcile, he, oh, I'm sorry, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So this was a key passage for Collier in believing that and asserting that there is a universal creation atonement, that it's not just for those who sinned, but also for uh, sinned as human beings, but also for all of creation. And Cox tries to go through and demonstrate that this is a, a false understanding of this passage um, and, and not, uh, you know, and taking this in the wrong way. And again, this goes back to obviously understanding what salvation is about and who is act salvation actually for. Why was salvation needed? It was needed to save particular people uh, in, in terms of freeing them from the curse of the law, which was the second death. And that's why Christ did that. Animals, trees, rocks haven't done that. And they're also not in Adam. They haven't sinned in Adam. They haven't fallen in Adam. We have. We are imputed with the sin of Adam as if we actually did the thing he did, um, in, at least in terms of the guilt. That guilt of Adam's sin is put upon us. It's imputed to our accounts as if we did it, and we're treated as if we disobeyed God. And so that punishment is upon us just by virtue of being in the posterity of Adam. And Collier did not seem to uh, have a proper understanding of those things at all. And so, you know, it, it makes sense that he would, in an unfettered way, see the atonement as being applicable uh, in this way. Uh, let's see here. In the very next chapter of our book here, uh, from Cox. Uh, Cox actually talks a little bit about the understanding that Collier had as it relates to covenant theology and the covenant of works, which can help, I think, us to see what's going on here a little bit. So he quotes them in the very next chapter. Uh, it says, quote, It's true the first death is come on all men by Adam's transgression, they having the same original nature of sin and death. It is come into all men as a judgment for the first transgression, but not as a sin to the second death. So Collier seemed to believe that everyone is under the transgression of Adam by virtue of being in Adam, but it doesn't lead to eternal damnation. Um, sure, it has effects now, but it's not going to have effects later for the second death, um, obviously, I think because he believed in a universal redemption. So that would make sense. Um, but his language of all of creation falling with Adam also seems to indicate that he believed uh, in some kind of creation falling under sin um, as well. So, you know, we have to we have to be really, really careful here as we're kind of parsing these things out. And Collier tries to parse out the passages that he uses to support it, like Colossians 120. Um, for instance, he talks about 
how uh, the reconciliation of the world is not the same kind of reconciliation as creation. He says, quote, not the same as the general, but ariseth out of it. Now, how he's able to make that kind of distinction is beyond me, considering he believes in a universal atonement for all of mankind. It would seem that the the blood of Christ and the death of Christ has the same effect upon creation that it does upon the elect. It redeems and reconciles. Um, so he tries to make a distinction where there really isn't one. Um, and then, of course, we've talked a little bit about uh, Collier's understanding of evangelism, that it must go to all uh, creation. And Cox starts to mock him a little bit. On page 102, he says, quote, Some great thing he hath imagined in this criticism that nobody else can find out, else he would not have inculcated it. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Old English word, I think. It with such a tautology as he doth. Or it may be, he only took this occasion to show his skill in the Greek. But if that be it, I must beg his pardon, for I think it is not much learning but something else that hath made him so far forget himself as to interpret the scripture after such as manner as he doth. And he's talking about uh, Mark 16, 15, that the gospels would be preached to every creature in, Co in Collier's understanding of what creature meant. So Cox is, you know, he's not impressed at all with um, Collier's understanding of the text. Um, and it, it really takes this literalist view of the scripture instead of using what we call the analogy of faith. And we've mentioned this, I don't know how many times on the show. Um, it, it's a term uh, used by John Owen to discuss taking one scripture that's clear and using it to compare it to another scripture that's less clear um, and using the scriptures to interpret itself. And we don't see Collier doing that um, at least as well as he should be, um, but taking scripture is more on a face value and rather than making sure that his interpretation is consistent with other parts of scripture. Um, and so you do see this kind of unfettered view of particular passages instead of letting other passages limit what he's talking about, uh, what Paul might be talking about. Um, and so that's why you see Collier kind of running off the rails with some of these passages because he's reading too much into them that shouldn't be there instead of letting other parts of scripture limit his understanding of them. So his, his hermeneutical framework is uh, completely off. Uh, we also see him saying, uh, quote, the gospel hath been and still is preached to the whole world by the worlds of God and his common goodness to men, end quote. So we see him uh, we see the gospel being preached. It should be preached to all things, but we also see God preaching the gospel through his creation, which, of course, us Reformed people, uh, the alarm bell should be going off because that is a conflation of general and special revelation. General revelation being seeing God revealing himself through creation. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? It's showing who God is, at least in a limited sense, through creation, showing that there is a God, showing God's works and his uh, mighty hand in, in creation. But it doesn't save and it does not bring one to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. That has to be done by the spirit through the scriptures, the preaching of the gospel, which we would argue is the word of God if preached correctly. So the scriptures coupled with the spirit's work must be there in order for one 
uh, to be saved. We never conflate those two things, general and special revelation. That uh, gets messy really fast. But Collier clearly uh, did that. Um, yeah, and you can see that very clearly, like in, in Romans chapter 1. We see men being held accountable for uh, their their knowledge of God from special, uh, I'm sorry, from general revelation. They see creation. They see what they're supposed to be doing. They have the law of God written on their hearts, Romans 1 and 2, and they rebel against that. But that's not special revelation. Those are things that are in nature, that are innate in us by virtue of being created in the image of God and by God's creation screaming him from the mountaintops and telling us of his mighty works and that he should be worshipped. Um, yet men suppress that. They're pushing it away, and they don't want anything to do with that, um, as opposed to a special revelation that comes through the scriptures um, to people through the preaching of the gospel. Collier also had uh, another interesting view of faith. He did not believe that you necessarily had to be saved by faith. He certainly thought that Christ was the only way of salvation, but he did not believe that you had to have faith in Christ necessarily, at least, to be saved. So you can see that the alarm bells with Cox just going off as you're reading this um, because of how dangerous this is, saying that one does not need faith in order to be saved. Uh, and of course, as biblical reformed Christians, we would say absolutely you need faith to be saved. That's the means God has used to justify us. Uh, we're saved through faith by grace. Uh, so if you don't have faith, there is no salvation in Jesus Christ. Absolutely none. There is no salvation outside of that whatsoever. Um, so you can already see Collier compromising on the gospel, changing the gospel um, to suit his wicked teachings. Um, and it, it's interesting, too, because if you know Collier's background, Collier was a prominent particular Baptist. He, he knew this. He knew the biblical teachings. He uh, went around preaching. He was well-known among particular Baptists. He wasn't a nobody that just showed up on the scene one day and started teaching bad teaching. He was one who was well-versed in biblical doctrine and turned away from it. Um, and so there's a greater condemnation on his head because he knew the truth and yet suppressed it and turned it away and twisted it for his own ends. It wasn't out of ignorance. It was uh, definitely deliberate, in my opinion, because of what he knew um, before. But these are, you know, these are some really just some tastes of uh, Collier's heresies. I mean, this this is let's see how many pages this. Is. It's about two hundred pages, I guess. Yeah, about two hundred pages. Um, so there's a lot of material here dealing with the doctrine of God. Of course, that's number one dealing with the person of the Son and the nature of God, dealing with election, dealing with free will, uh, dealing with uh, things of that nature. Um, because Collier just one by one just started going down and destroying um, or trying to undermine the Christian faith with his, with his heresies. And the particular Baptists had to present a response. I mean, particular Baptists were already not well-liked among the establishment. Um, and so... You know, this is something that could cause a lot of problems if they don't deal with it. And that was probably something that was going through their minds as they were responding and, and hearing these things and having to deal with these things. Um, their credibility could be shot 
if if there wasn't any kind of and it could lead others astray um, i think more importantly um so very helpful work be sure to get this again broken wharf that's w-h-a-r-f-e brokenwharf.com you can pre-order this i think it's on sale for 32.99 or something like that it's a reasonable price it's hardcover so you know you're you're getting a high quality uh publication here but very helpful um the thing about works like this, it's very hard to find works like this. And there actually is a database online of old English works. I can't remember the name of it. Um, I, I'm sure I can find it fairly quickly. I can probably find it very quickly. Um, but this work was on there. But it's, you know, it, in a database like that, these works are not formatted well. There's page numbers, but you got to, you know, you got to really dig if you want to find uh, something and then hope you can read it well because it's written in an older English or there might be terms that are hard to understand, etc. Um, so Dr. Renahan has done a really good job of putting together this work and helping us to kind of understand some of the terminology. Uh, there's footnotes in here from uh, Dr. Renahan explaining you know, certain different characters that are being referred to, um, different phrases that are used in here to help us understand for the modern reader what is going on. Um, there's different formattings that are used, um, italicies, et cetera, to help us to better follow along with what's going on. So this is a great work and, and a work that I think helps us to understand you know, what's going on in the particular Baptist world, making it more accessible. We can see more of the theology that's coming out of particular Baptists as our confession is coming on the scene. What were some of the things that they were dealing with? What did they believe about a particular topic? I think it can be helpful for us to work through those things uh, as it relates to maybe some difficult areas of our confession of faith. So excellent historical resource and theological resource. Um, a, a lot of these guys, these people back then, you know, you read like a Turretin who has a, you know, this four volume massive work dealing with difficult issues. A lot of these issues that we struggle with today, like, you know, God's decree or um, election, whatever, the, you know, the doctrine of God, those have all been worked out for the most part. Uh, we just have to be willing to go back and read these guys. Are we willing to go back and read the old guys and what they said about particular issues? Um, I know it's these type of studying the old guys has really helped me to grow in my understanding of difficult areas of our faith that have already been worked out. Um, it's just, we have to pick up these books and read them and study them. Um, and, and I think it would settle a lot of controversies today if people would actually go back and read and people would be better suited to defend the faith um, against those, uh, even among our own circles who are, who claim to be Christians, um, but seem to push doctrine that is contrary to scripture we can be better suited to address those particular issues. So definitely get this, brokenwharf.com, um, and you can pre-order it. Um, so uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Just kind of, hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully you go get the book um, and study these things for yourselves. Um, but I, I thank everyone for, for joining today, and Lord willing, uh, we'll be back next week. I will be out. I'm going to be speaking at a youth conference uh, down in Southern Virginia. So I will not be doing the podcast. I will be putting up a pre-recorded um, lesson 
from one of our team members uh, from our church uh, doing giving a lecture at our church. Um, but then hopefully the following week, we'll be able to come back with a live session, a live podcast. But thank you, everyone, for joining today. Hopefully this has been helpful. And I hope everyone has a great Lord's Day next week. Take care.